0: Just last week, it came to light that the Obama administration is deep in bed, for lack of a better term, with the content industry all the way from the copyright czar down to a wide range of officials from Vice President Joe Biden's Deputy Chief of Staff, Alan Hoffman, to the Justice Department's Criminal Chief, Lanny Brewer, to copyright czar Victoria Espinel all about the recent accord about cracking down on potential violators of intellectual property. Joining me now to help understand the relationship between government and content creators who are protected by intellectual property rights law is Stefan Kinsella, a lawyer from Houston, Texas, and senior fellow at the Ludwig von Mises Institute. Stefan, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Adam, glad to be here.
0: All right, so this is the kind of thing that I think most people see and go, Okay, government in bed with industry again, no big deal. And, and I, I would wager that you're not particularly surprised by these revelations, but why should the average American be concerned about a story like this?
1: Well, I mean, there are several reasons. First, we have government basically using private industry to enforce the laws that the government grants for the benefit of those same big businesses. Um, And by doing this, then they escape a lot of the normal scrutiny that we would give if it was an explicit government action. Okay,
0: hold hold on, hold on. I I think I need you to step back for just a second here because we're talking about internet service providers, right? That's that's the agreement, the the recording industry and, and internet service providers agreement to disrupt internet access for users suspected of violating copyright law. How does that happen?
1: Well, the details are still a little bit sketchy and shadowy, but apparently the ISPs and the music companies and the music industry, the content providers, have come together with the sort of background support of the government, the federal government, to come up with a plan to alert suspected customers. And I don't know how they're going to be suspected, but when someone raises an alarm that some potential customers potentially violating copyright law by downloading movies from the Pirate Bay or downloading… Music and some other site, they're going to get a warning and then maybe an educational video and then maybe a request to approve that you've seen this message and then they're going to throttle their bandwidth speed and then maybe kick them off altogether.
0: But by a warning video, mean those annoying condescending ones that say, "You wouldn't steal a car, so you better not steal a song," right? That that kind of thing.
1: And the things we have to suffer through at the beginning of movies when we rent DVDs now, um, and I think even Google uh, agreed a while back to send suspected uh, copyright criminals to some kind of a copyright educational school uh, by making them watch some videos.
0: So why, why is this uh, a, a new threat? What is the new threat that's, that's come out of this, this new collusion? Isn't this already set up well for the government to be able to, to, to crack down on intellectual property rights violators?
1: It is. In, in a way, It's I believe it's a little bit like the drug war, one of these unwinnable wars, right? Because of uh, encryption technology and uh, uh, mirroring of sites and, uh, uh, you know, VPN and encryption, people peop- and torrenting, people are coming up with ways to get around these uh, mechanisms that the content industry has been using to protect their content. Uh, and so it's it's almost like an unwinnable war. So what you have is just as the government in the drug war. When they're, when they're losing that war they just increase the penalties and they hire more cops and they cause more carnage and devastation. they are going at this in all fronts they are trying to twist the arms of other countries uh, Russia India China to adopt our type of protections they are twisting the arms of other countries to sign international agreements like the recently signed ACTA or any uh, counterfeiting um, trade agreement and they are also ratcheting up the government's ability and private industry's ability to penalize private users who are flouting these laws.
0: Okay, but this is something that, that's, that's been going on. W- would you say that this recent development or, or that this this new power uh, that, that they're seeking to be able to shut down an individual's internet service through the ISP or requiring that ISPs do that, is, is, this, is this the new front? And, and isn't this, can, can you give us like an historical analogy To to this, because I'm trying to have, I'm I'm having a hard time wrapping my brain around this. In in that, the internet service providers are being asked to control the content of what they're delivering, or punish people, or not provide a service based on what's being delivered. I mean, this is like having, you know, you, you know, holding holding Kinko's responsible every time someone makes a photocopy of something that's that's not supposed to be copied, right?
1: Exactly. I I think the problem here is that it's difficult to see this clearly, and the government and the big content industry like it that way. They like it to be cloudy and Mm. muddled, and and so there are two primary ways they obscure the real issue. Number one is by calling patent and copyright intellectual property, by calling it a property right, which it is actually not. That's like a fairly recent propaganda term used to dress up and sell this idea of the government granting state monopoly privileges to favored industries, which protects them from competition, basically. So they call it property. And most Americans, most citizens are generally think they're in favor of property rights and they're against stealing. So when you label it that way, you know, you sort of think, well, you know, these private companies are trying to stop piracy and bad things from happening, right? Um, so, so that's part of it. Um, it, but actually, the origin of this goes way back in time to the uh, to the height of mercantilism back in the say late 1500s, when the government was involved in granting a variety of special privileges to favored businesses in exchange for loyalty or even help with collecting taxes, for example. So the you know the the crown would grant a monopoly on playing cards or the wool export or leather or wine, not to someone who invented it, but just to someone who had uh, you know favored, uh, cozied up to the crown, or bribed the right court uh, courtesans or something like that. Um, but in exchange, these merchants would give the crown loyalty and also help to collect taxes. Uh, but of course, you can't really enforce these these monopoly privileges that the state grants you, like a monopoly on the only business to sell playing cards in England, right? Something like that. You can't really enforce that without the government's help, because people can easily make their own competing cards And sell them at a lower price and undercut your monopoly price. So, of course, they had to enlist the state's help uh, either to get the state to come and search and seize and do warrantless searches of suspected counterfeiting businesses or do it on their own with the state's sort of wink, wink, nod, nod blessing. So in this way, the private companies become arms for the state and they rely upon the state to protect the privileges that the state grants them. And we see this now in a new reform with the RIAA, the, mu- the music industry, and the movie industry um, lobbying the state to – I think uh, recently the movie industry lobbied uh, the California government to enact a law that, uh, that permits warrantless searches of anyone suspected of printing uh, counterfeit DVDs or CDs. Um, it's probably going to get struck down as being unconstitutional, but that's only because that's seen as a government law. Uh, what's going on now is the government is doing what's almost a fascist kind of thing, like was done in Hitler's Nazi Germany, where uh, private companies are nominally private. They look like they're private. But behind the scenes, the government is pulling the strings and really directing their policy, either subtly or explicitly. Um, so in this case, you know, if uh, v- Time Warner or Verizon comes in and cuts off my Internet access, they don't really have to give me due process because they're not the government right? They don't
0: look like the government. But of course, they have tons of government privileges. And in that case, they're following a government regulation at this point.
1: And they're following government regulation, which is in the interest of the content industry, which is also in bed with the government uh, and the the ISPs because they feed them their shows.
0: So so is, is this a case where the content providers are just doing a better job of being in bed with government than the ISPs are? Because wouldn't the ISPs want to just provide service unfettered and not have these, have, have these extra burdens of enforcing regulations and going after people?
1: Yeah, actually this agreement was a little bit interesting in that the ISPs were part of it because you can see the interest of the content providers. Um, they want to enforce their copyrights because they can charge these uh, monopoly fees for them. Uh, And I think they actually charge the cable companies to carry their shows. So the cable companies are sort of in a bind because they can't get content to show their subscribers and their customers unless they have the agreement of the content providers. And they have to get their permission because the content providers have the protection of copyright law in the first place. So the ISPs, I think, are sort of dupes or Mm -hmm. or pawns in this this battle.
0: Okay. So I want to go back to this 16th century example that you brought up that that Mm -hmm. back... Back in, in the, the days of Queen Elizabeth, intellectual monopolies actually became uh, in vogue in the royal courts when people could win over uh, the royalty there by, by bribes or by threats or by blackmail or who knows. And you used the example, or, or maybe it was Rothbard in the analysis here, of buttons. That there was a certain monopoly privilege on a kind of buttons that, that, that is the equivalent Of intellectual property today. First, can can you explain that example?
1: This was like in the late 1600s in France, and there was a button makers guild, and they had a monopoly on the manufacture of buttons. And of course, they could charge monopoly prices for them, and they could outlaw competition. Well, some enterprising tailors, who were part of the, I think the tailors guild, you know, they made cloth things. Some of them said, well, why don't we make buttons out of cloth? And you know, that might not be the ideal way to make buttons, but you know, if if consumers can buy it for a much cheaper price, they might do it, and that might even even become a fashion trend. So these cloth-made buttons started being made, and uh, the, the, the button-makers guild demanded and got the right to, uh, to arrest people on the street who were wearing cloth buttons because they were not permitted, wow. not approved by the government. There was an even worse example in France. Um, there was a, a time when the fabric makers, you know, the modern fashion industry, or the, the, the predecessor of the modern fashion industry, Um, Had a protection on their designs, so they could stop uh, people from competing with them by making competing or similar designs, knocking off their clothing designs. And they were the government was literally executing people for wearing or using or buying the unauthorized clothing with the wrong designs. They actually broke them on the wheel, and they still couldn't stop it. It's sort of like the drug war again. I mean, you can put people in jail and execute them, but the drug war will will go on, and so will uh, you know purchasing of of a of cheaper clothes
0: right no i, I had no idea it went to that level that's, that's really scary but that's the the sort of logical conclusion of these policies when they when when people have the guts to enforce them but th- there was also the case with, with these buttons that you had to violate privacy in order to enforce them, and that people's homes or places of business would be raided on the suspicion that they had illegal buttons or or illegal articles of clothing and what I want to ask then, what is the equivalent today in terms of the implications for law? This the way that we see intellectual uh, intellectual monopolies imposed on the American economy to our concept of the Fourth Amendment.
1: Well, I would say the um, there's a lot of uh, parallels today. Number one, um, you have a lot of warrantless seizures being done now. Uh, and you have uh, a lot of uh, invasive searches being done without a warrant, just with a, a court order instead of a warrant. Uh, by And then domains are being seized by ICE, the Immigrations and Customs Enforcement Agency. And then you have these sort of soft penalties are emerging through the ISPs, which are sort of a soft arm of the state. But worse than that, there are actually criminal penalties in the law now for certain copyright and uh, trade secret theft and other type of intellectual property, so-called crimes. It's not merely a civil matter. But even if you talk talk about only the civil matter, the crimes are absolutely astronomical. You've probably heard some of these awards, and people almost can't believe them. They're so high. People find $3 million for downloading 10 songs. I mean when most the songs are 99 cents each, how can you even get there? Um, There was a law professor named John Teheranian who did a study a couple of years ago, and he sort of took an expansive view of exactly what copyright – just copyright covers. And he said, let's take an, an, an average, fairly internet savvy user and go through his activities on a, on a yearly basis, You know, sending emails to people, clipping things from, from uh, websites and emailing people, sharing pictures, no widespread piracy, things like that. He calculated that theoretically, if you were uh, held to account for every copyright law that you violated… Every individual in the United States, or the average individual, would be liable for $4.5 billion a year in damages. Now, it's just inconceivable. Now, uh, there's two problems I see with this. Number one, um, I'm not sure why someone hasn't challenged this yet under the Eighth Amendment, cruel and unusual punishments and fines. This, if nothing else, it seems to me to be a totally excessive uh, fine. I can't see how anyone, even the you know, the movie and music industry could justify um, uh, such a fine. And second of all, the government obviously can't enforce all that, so it gives them the discretion to have selective enforcement and to pick out people and make examples of them. uh,
0: Anybody can be made, right, anybody can be made a criminal, anybody can be made an enemy of the state, because they're a regular internet user at this point. Well, I, I have to ask then, because this has become such an ingrained part of the current paradigm, this concept of of intellectual property, which which we know now is is a scam, we see from especially these these recent revelations, the true interests of the government and the service providers and the content industry. How can we how can we stand up to this? How how, how can we fight back? And aside from from talking about this and from spreading the word, and, and for those of us who are intellectual <laughs> content providers, making sure that that we use things like copyleft or or creative commons in, in distributing. Uh, whatever we produce what what can what can people do
1: well there is uh, I'm actually a little bit heartened in a way by the the, I think the internet itself and the growth of digital media the growth of social communications and social media uh, there's a growing awareness at least among the younger generations of the of the ridiculousness of restraints on the flow of information there's a, a growing free culture movement. there's a growing free software movement that's been around for a while. There's a really growing and exciting open science movement. I just attended the Open Science Summit this weekend in Mountain View, California, and I tell you the uh, the the large and energetic and vigorous number of young scientific and technical types who are almost all in favor of freedom of information is heartening. So I think that we just have to keep pushing for openness, and we have to emphasize. That there is a conflict between freedom of expression and information and even our own bodies and property and intellectual property. In other words, we have to realize that copyright basically is a form of censorship. And if you respect the First Amendment and the right of freedom of speech and freedom of expression, and if you respect property rights, you have to at some point decide what you're in favor of. Giving monopoly profits to a heavy handed Gestapo, you know, wielding movie and music industry, or let people have freedom of speech, freedom of expression, and property rights.
0: Well, I guess the other thing we can do is stop feeding into the system by the end run and engaging, choosing to uh, to, to consume free content as opposed to copyrighted content and support those artists and creators who are doing so without using the force of government to limit the spread of their their ideas. Stefan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Adam. Ladies and gentlemen, Steven Gonzales, Senior Fellow at the Ludwig von Mises Institute from Houston, Texas.